is going to be found on page 810 of your house Bible. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Aaron, if you want to come up, go ahead and pray for us. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Quiet our minds and still our hearts. Open our ears as Aaron preaches from your word. Strengthen us and inspire our spirits, for in your living waters flow endless grace. So much. Good morning, Cars. In his popular book, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins That We Tolerate, uh, author and pastor Jerry Bridges writes this in regards to anger. He says, I believe that many Christians live in denial about their anger. They consciously experience the flare-up of negative thoughts and emotions towards someone who has displeased them. But they do not identify this as anger, especially as sinful anger. They focus on the other person's wrongdoing and justify their own reaction. They do not see their sin. Consequently, their anger is acceptable to them. They sense no need to deal with it. Um, at the risk of kind of pigeonholing myself with the kinds of analogies that I use, uh, I want us to consider, again, something from the Marvel movies and superheroes. Last time we did this, um, I got a lot of good feedback that it was helpful and clear. So, uh, To display the degree to which anger has become acceptable, not just in our broader culture, but even in our churches, uh, I want you to consider one of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Hulk. As his alter ego, Bruce Banner, uh, he's a mild-mannered and brilliant scientist. He's as smart or smarter than anyone in the whole universe. But then as the Hulk, he's a big green monster and he's one of the strongest creatures in the entire universe. But what is it that enables Bruce Banner to become the Incredible Hulk. It's not this abundance of courage that he musters up. It's not a desire to protect the weak or the vulnerable. And it's not even a radioactive spider bite. It is his incessant and unrelenting rage. In fact, if you've seen the very first Avengers movie where they all get together, 
their kid right for the big fight scene, Captain America. Neil looks at him and says, hey, Bruce, this would really be a good time for you to get angry. I'm trying to get him to turn to the Hulk. And Bruce kind of just turns and looks at him slyly and goes, that's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. And then he immediately transforms into the Hulk. How many of us are like that? Walking around constantly fomenting with anger under the surface. How many of us are invisibly fuming and ready to hulk out at the drop of a hat? How many of us have the capability of flexing our muscles and just roaring at our brothers and sisters in Christ? And in the same way that the Hulk will just jump right through a New York skyscraper, how many of us are just looking for an excuse to metaphorically demolish parts of our church, our MCs, or our families? If we're being honest with ourselves, I have to be honest with myself, we probably all have that in us somewhere. Most of us do. And we always seem to have an excuse for that anger. Hey, I'm not angry. I'm just passionate. I just care all that stuff. Or, you know, well, they deserve it. They deserve it. Or, I'm just an angry person sometimes, okay? It's who I am, and I can't change that. Maybe you can already feel kind of the, you know, defensiveness level rising in here. Um, Maybe it's social media. You know, maybe it's the way we interact around sensitive conversations where it's just like the angriest person wins. It becomes a shouting match or some kind of challenge where whoever looks the angriest is the one who's the most morally outraged and therefore the winner. Their arguments more impressive. Um, in this next block of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to do his own kind of like respectable sins series. Today, and then over the next several weeks, we're going to see Jesus talk about our tempers. He's going to teach us about marriage and sexuality. He's going to talk to us about honesty and integrity, about violence, and then how we relate to our enemies. This is the tough part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's nice to, feels nice to spend a long time hearing about how, you know, we're blessed. And we are blessed. And Jesus will say, you're blessed, all you people who are down in the dumps, you're blessed. And you're salt and light. And all the scripture points to me. And y'all are a bunch of murdering adulterers if you get angry or lustful. That's what Jesus is going to get ready to go into in this next section of the sermon. And now, not that any sins are truly respectable or acceptable in God's sight or in our churches. But in Jesus' day and in our day, these are sins that we always tend to struggle with perpetually as individuals, as a community. And they're the ones that we are really good at making excuses for. But Jesus doesn't see these sins or any sins that way. Since we're moving into this next section, let's, let's pause for a second. Let's quickly refresh, reestablish our context for the Sermon on the Mount. 
So it gives us a better understanding of Jesus' teachings. So first off, Matthew as a book. It's a very Jewish gospel. We talked about this at the very beginning of the sermon. Um, when Jesus sits down on the mountaintop to teach, we need to think back to Moses. He's the new authoritative lawgiver for God's people. And in the sermon, especially these next passages where he's quoting from the law, he's giving us an authoritative interpretation of the Torah. Secondly, Matthew is telling us a story about how Jesus becomes king over all of creation. Again, that's like right there in the title of our sermon series, if you remember. That means that the Sermon on the Mount and its teachings, they're not just moral suggestions. They're not kind of heavenly ideals that, you know, maybe one day we could hope to see. But they are, in fact, the way of life for God's kingdom today for the last 2,000 years. And then finally here, Jesus is correcting the teachings of the Pharisees. And now we often like to think of the Pharisees as these overly legalistic, adding uh, numerous and unbearable load of rules to the people of God. And they did do that. Absolutely. But just as often, they would be guilty of lowering God's standard. They would look at the law, they'd tell people in these upcoming passages, go ahead, as long as you don't actually murder someone, you can hate them, you can curse them, you can rage at them, just don't like, actually kill them. Or, as long as you don't actually have an affair with your neighbor's spouse, you can Look, lust, speak inappropriately, disrespect your own spouse. Just don't actually commit adultery, okay? In the Sermon on the Mount, though, Jesus is raising this bar that's been drastically lower. And in raising that bar, he's going to tell us about the consequences of these respectable sins. Today, with the sin of anger. What are we going to learn about it? And then what are we supposed to do about it? So first, Jesus wants to drive home the point that our anger damages us as individuals. It starts by damaging us as people made in God's image. Anger lies at the heart of so many other sins or so many other forms of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Think about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. If you're angry towards someone, you're probably not showing them love. Probably not. Anger will just sap the joy right out of you. And personally, I've never seen anyone produce kindness, gentleness, or self-control while being filled with anger. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus preaches to the crowds and he ties the sin of anger to murder. And then after we look at those first couple of verses, you, you might be thinking, really? Really, Jesus? Murder and anger? Equating anger with murdering your own brother? Isn't that a little extreme? Surely he's exaggerating, right? It's an easy way that we have to try and get out of some of Jesus' teachings. Sure, it's just hyperbolic. 
let's, it may, maybe it's an extreme example, maybe it's not, but let's look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. This story is Cain and Abel. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. I have a good feeling that Jesus, with all of his scriptural knowledge, all the scripture pointing to him, had this story in mind when he taught the crowds. It's the first story of anger between brothers. It's the first story of murder. They go hand in hand. Let me give you a, a helpful Bible study tip. Uh, if you're, maybe you're filling out your, your Matthew scripture journal, uh, you're, you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount with us kind of during the week. If you get hung up on something, flip forward to the book of James. And maybe someday you'll be doing a deep dive study in the book of James. If you're confused by something, flip back to the Sermon on the Mount. When you read them together, it's pretty clear that Jesus' half-brother um, spent a lot of time meditating on how to live this sermon out in his church. Here's what he writes in James chapter 1, a couple of verses. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Get down a few verses. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger of man as opposed to the anger of God. The anger of man produces unrighteousness, produces sin and violence and strife. It's at the heart of murder. It's not the right, it's not the anger of God, who's just rightly angry at our sin and responds rightly in his anger. If an individual murder is birthed out of one person's anger, then how much more are the evils of war or genocide birthed from the anger of communities or empires against one another? This is a, a quote from Pastor Joshua Ryan Butler in one of his books. He says this, Jesus wants genocide out of God's world. Only he takes it a lot more seriously than I do. We want to get rid of genocide. Jesus wants to get rid of rage. I want to prune back the wicked tree. He wants to dig out the fruit. There's a wicked tree that has grown to monstrous proportions in our world, damaging and destroying the lives of tens of millions beneath its dark, disastrous shade. And the root of that wicked tree lives in me. Jesus knows that our anger is destructive and that our anger multiplies sin in and around us. 
Jesus also taught the crowds that anger destroys our community. Destroys our community. It harms the relationships that we have with one another as a church family. I thought this was, was very interesting when I was studying. So let's look closely if you've got your Bibles open at some of these verses, just some of the, the words that stick out. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus is talking about the person who is angry. He gives a warning to anyone who would curse or hate their brothers or sisters. But in the later verses, he gives a warning and instruction to the people who know they have made someone angry. First example, you are angry. Second example, you've made someone angry. Notice what Jesus says. If you remember that your brother has something against you, and later settle with your accuser, there's no such thing as private anger. It's destructive by its nature, which means that it is or it will become a problem that affects everyone around you. There's one thing, there's one other thing that Jesus says here that I find interesting. I think it's important. In the first scenario, Jesus speaks about your brother having something against you. In the second, he says, settle with your accuser. Now, it's possible that Jesus is describing two different scenarios, two different illustrations. But I'm convinced that this is actually one running illustration. And Jesus transitions from brother to accuser. He's telling us this. If our anger is not addressed, then your family will become your accuser, your adversary, your rival, your enemy. Our anger then divides God's people. It makes it a community problem. We just looked at James chapter 1, but let's look again at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Pay attention to all those anger words in there. Fight, quarrel, murder, your passions. Remember that excuse we have sometimes about justifying our anger? I'm not angry, I'm just passionate. I'm just passionate, okay? And quickly, let's make sure we define quarreling. That's kind of an old-timey word now. I've never heard anyone say they were quarreling. Uh, quarreling is to have some kind of argument or sharp disagreement. An argument or sharp disagreement. So James is affirming what Jesus says about anger causing community problems. Anger creates strained relationships and broken fellowship in the church. Finally, in addition to creating the individual, the community problems, anger damages our worship. It inhibits our ability to worship and relate to God. Verses 23, verses 24 are really important here in this reason. 
So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, leave your, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. What's Jesus saying? He's telling us that our relationship to our brothers and sisters is more important than the gifts we would give to God. We see this, it's just not, it's not a new thing that Jesus is saying. We see this in the Old Testament as well. Let's look at a couple of verses really quickly. In Hosea chapter 6, we read this. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. And in 1 Samuel 15, the Bible says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. God doesn't want our offerings as much as he wants our hearts. That's why he tells us to be generous in the first place with those offerings. Because it makes him more, it makes us more like him. But if we damage our relationships with our spiritual family and don't do anything about it, then we're not being like God at all. Our gifts are not worth giving if they're not giving with the right heart. What does this mean for us then? It means if you're angry at your brother or your brother is angry at you, your offering doesn't have any value. The songs that you sing don't sound good in God's ears. And that when you serve, you're really just serving yourself. It's not a discouragement for any of us to not give or serve or um, sing. But what comes first? What comes before those things even, as important as they are? Our anger towards our spiritual family isolates us from God, the God who loves us and created us and redeemed us. Can I give you a point of application right now in the middle of the sermon? I know it, it probably feels a little bit weird to just kind of stop and, and do some application, but that's kind of the point. Right here in the middle of this passage, and it takes place right in the middle of things. If there's someone in this auditorium right now that you know that you've wronged or that you know has wronged you. Right now. Yeah, everyone's going to see you. But this is faithfulness to Jesus' words right here. If there's someone in this room that you need to make things right with, do that right now. If there's someone who's not here that you need to make things right with, step out in the hall. Give them a call. If you're watching on the live stream, pause this, mute me or something. And if you hurt your roommate, your spouse, your kids, whoever you're watching with, make things right with them right now. Apologize. Ask for forgiveness. Find a way to make right what you've messed up. I'm serious. Right now. I know that I'm in the middle of a sermon. I know that we're in the middle of worshiping as we listen and learn. But you know what? Jesus cares about reconciliation. 
In this passage, he says he cares about it so much that you can interrupt a worship gathering. It's okay to do that. You should do that. It's more important to reconcile than it is for everyone to keep sitting quietly. Before we move on from this point, let's look more closely at the language of verse 25. I hope you all love this as much as I do. Jesus told his disciples, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Another version might say, uh, settle matters. When we hear the, that phrase, that terminology, what likely rings in our ears is kind of that cold, impersonal, out-of-court settlement that we see on the news. Person A might accuse company B of some kind of damages. And instead of going through the whole legal process, which will take a really long time and disappoint everyone, they get together and they say, okay, you said I did this thing wrong. You said I need to give you this much money. How about we compromise? How about we compromise? That's not what Jesus is alluding to here. When Jesus says come to terms with or settle matters, what that word most literally means is to make friends with. Make friends with your accuser, Jesus says. And after all, that's, that's kind of the mission that he gives to the whole church. Love your enemies until they're your neighbors. And then love your neighbors until they're your family. So let's quickly recap what it is that Jesus is saying about our respectable sin of anger. Our anger creates problems for us as individuals because our anger lies at the heart of so many other sins that we commit. Our anger damages our community, creates these horizontal problems because it divides and destroys the relationships in our church. Our anger produces vertical problems. It destroys our worship because it keeps us from being able to worship in the way that God desires us to. So what does Jesus say is the solution to our anger problems? Twice here, Jesus says to the one who made their brother or sister angry that they need to make things right. Reconcile with your brother. Settle with your accuser. Make friends with your accuser. What about the person who is angry? For that, we can look at our passage. We can also look at Matthew 18. This is kind of classic verse, you know, passage on, on church discipline. But what is step one? Here Jesus says what? That if your brother or sister sins against you, you just kind of act like nothing happened and you're bitter towards them forever? No. He says this in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Jesus tells the person who is angry to go reconcile. Obviously, reconciliation is a team activity. Um, one person can forgive without the other person forgiving, but it takes two to reconcile. But Jesus does not let anyone off the hook when it comes to anger. If you're the offender, 
Jesus says, go to them and ask for forgiveness. Repent and make things right. And if you've been offended, Jesus says, go to them and call them to repentance. Whether you have hurt someone or you've been hurt by someone, it's Jesus' call to you to restore that relationship as best you can. Back when, uh, back when we were just dating, my wife, Caitlin, noted that one thing that she thought I was pretty good at was apologizing and asking for forgiveness and forgiving, uh, which is good because I needed to do that a lot. Yeah. And I don't say that as like some kind of humble brag or anything like that, uh, but because the more I thought about it, I remembered that forgiving, asking for forgiveness, apologizing, these are something that my parents taught us as siblings very specifically. It's not just go apologize, but we'd get together and they would tell us how to apologize, which is good because there were also a lot of times back then when I needed to apologize and ask for forgiveness. And this is what they would tell us. And this is your application if no one's ever laid it out for you like this. It's not enough, and if you're parent, you already know some of this. It's not enough to yell, sorry, from the other side of the house while the other person is pouting in their room. Instead, my parents taught me, you had to go to the person you hurt. Look them in the eye. You have to look them in the eye and apologize specifically for what you've done. You have to name the thing that you did that hurt them. You have to acknowledge that what you did was wrong. And then you have to ask for forgiveness. This, isn't, this is nowhere in the sorry way of apologizing. There's no forgiveness there at all. And then if one of us would refuse to go apologize, sometimes even my parents would tell the other one of us that we needed to go and let them know that they had hurt us. And that we had decided to forgive them. Spoiler alert. It's like expert level forgiveness. To forgive someone who didn't apologize to you. Still struggle with that. Well, why did they teach us that? Number one. It was just a way that you could have peace between fighting siblings. Number two. This is what Jesus commands of his followers. And number three. This is the ultimate example of what God did for us. God is the ultimate expert at forgiveness. He forgave us not only when we didn't ask for it, but when we didn't even think we needed it, and we sure didn't want it. But God's forgiveness is perfect, it's complete and full. It's powerful enough to enable us to have relationship with him and with the brothers and sisters around us. Since our sermon topic is about anger, I have to say, one of the most famous sermons ever preached in this hemisphere was Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And as brilliant of a theologian as Edwards was, um, he just he didn't get everything right all the time. You see, 
God does get angry, but he's not angry by nature. He's angry by circumstance. What does that mean? It means that God's default attitude is not of anger, though when we sin, we do anger God with righteous anger. When we dishonor him or hurt our brothers and sisters, God is right to be angry. And he's, and we deserve the wrath and the punishment that comes from that. But even more than being sinners in the hands of an angry God, we're sinners in the hands of a loving God, of a forgiving, of a reconciling, dying for his enemies and raising back to life God. Church, when you turn away from your sins and trust Jesus, you are a sinner in the arms of his gracious embrace. And church, that's the gospel. That's our hope and our joy and our comfort. And it's our reason for laying down the anger that we have against one another. Let's pray. Father, you love us with uh, just a perfect love, an eternal love. We thank you and we praise you for that. God, you've given us your word to confront us, to challenge us. God, with your Holy Spirit, convict us of those places in our hearts where we are just holding on to anger against one another. God, would you make us forgivers like you and reconcilers like you. Make us like Jesus towards those in our church and our MCs and our families and our jobs and anywhere else. God, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.